Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey, you guys, the Other People podcast is offered freely. All episodes of this show are available free of charge, more than 500 and counting. You can listen online at otherppl.com. You can listen via iTunes, Stitcher, iHeartRadio. You can stream the show on Spotify. You can get the free Other People app. This show has its own app. It's free. Everything's free. So it's a listener-supported program. Your support really matters. If you would like to support this show, you can do so at patreon.com slash otherpplpod. That's patreon.com slash otherpplpod, okay? Okay. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jesus, dude, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, it's like your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host. Brad Listy. Just one person and just one guy. So, hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome to the Other People Podcast. I'm Brad Listy. I am in Los Angeles, California. It's good to be with you. I have Melissa Broder back on the program for a third time. She is a dear friend of mine and is celebrating the publication of her debut novel. It is called The Pisces. It is available now from Hogarth. There was just a big write-up about Melissa in the New York Times. Did you read that? Uh, The book has been getting rave reviews. I'm very happy for her. She is also, uh, many of you may know her by her uh, Twitter avatar, So Sad Today. She is the woman behind the very popular at So Sad Today Twitter feed. And, uh, I mean, she's also at Melissa Broder, but at So Sad Today has become a kind of sensation. And uh, she published an essay collection called So Sad Today, I believe just last year or the year before. I'm bad with time, but recently. And now she is celebrating uh, the publication of her first novel, Again, it is called The Pisces, and uh, my conversation with her is coming up in just a second. I'm going to get right to it. I am uh, running a little behind this week. I was out of town. I was up in San Francisco for some job stuff, and uh, I got to spend some time in San Francisco. And despite the fact that I live in Southern California, I have not been up there in way too long, and I happened to catch it in just perfect weather, like ideal conditions, at least for me. It was like 70 degrees, blue sky, very light breeze. Like warm sun, cool air, perfect weather. And uh, I got, I like rented a bike. This is what I like to do whenever I go somewhere. I rented a bike. I just rode around. I went all around town, got to really see the place. And uh, it was just spectacular. It's a beautiful city. 
So I'm trying to think of what else. I mean, I ate some great food. There were, I, th- I want to say there were robot vacuum cleaners in my hotel, which felt very tech, like very San Francisco. But then uh, I, you know, someone on Twitter was like, no, they're actually uh, butlers. They deliver towels. Well, there goes Twiggy. I, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what they were. I didn't see any towels. And I didn't realize that, you know, they were using robots in hotels yet. I've never been to a hotel that had robots. This one did. I did not interact with the robots. I took like a, a video. Hang on a second. Twiggy. I gave Twiggy a bath today. Sort of overdue. But she's like gotten too big for the bath, that, like this little tub that we used to use. That's like, you know, that's kind of uh, bittersweet. That probably was the last bath in that tub. I'm going to have to buy a bigger tub. Or take her to one of these places where like you wash your dog yourself. I got to say, I'm I'm inclined to give my dog a bath and not outsource that. I feel like it's a good bonding experience for you and your pet. So, you know, I was out of town. I'm sort of her primary caregiver. So I feel like she thinks that I'm, like, I'm sort of her best buddy because we go hiking together and stuff. And so when I went out of town, uh, my wife, Carrie, was like, you know, Twiggy was very upset. She was like looking all over the house for you. So it was good to, to kind of reconnect with Twig, you know, with Twiggy today. I gave her a bath. I had to run some errands. Got stuff to do. You know, like weird stuff. Like I had to get the vacuum cleaner fixed. I had to drive out to the valley. Middle of nowhere. And then on the way back, I was like, you know what? I'll take Twiggy to a dog park. Because she's been sort of cooped up since I've been gone. And I took her to the dog park. And she, you know, she's six months old. She didn't really know what to do sort of followed me around. I'm like, please go run, like play with the other dogs. She wouldn't leave my side. She's a little shy. So I'm looking out at her right now on the, on the patio. And she's like, she does this thing for some reason, bees like to land on our patio, like on the ground. I don't know what's going on. Like are the bees dying? But she then, uh, I'm watching her right now. She plays with them. She like follows them around and tries to like touch her nose to them and she gets stung. Twiggy. Hey. Twiggy. Anyway, she's going to eat a bee. I guess you got to learn. I mean, she's already had it happen once. She's still she's still doing it. She likes to eat bees. <laughs> Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. 
by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Uh, all right, so let's get to the conversation. Melissa Broder, back on the program for a third time. Her new novel, her debut novel, The Pisces, is available now from Hogarth. I'm very pleased to share this conversation with you. Here she is, folks. This is Melissa Broder. After I finished So Sad today, I still felt like I wanted to explore like love as addiction and like the human desire to sort of like take a single narcotic moment of limerence and like not everyone, but like not like maybe like certain sane people, but like my desire to like take a moment of like narcotic limerence and like try to live in there forever. And wait, I wait, what done. is limerence? Limerence is like the state of intoxication when you're like newly obsessed with somebody right it's that feeling it's like the the dopamine release so um i started writing poems again but i felt like i was just writing the same poems that i had been writing like i didn't feel like there was any progress and then one day i was sitting on venice beach where i was living um and i read this novella by giuseppe de tomasi lampedusa how did you find this Nikki, my husband. Okay. Yeah, everything. He's like an amazing reader and his library always like guides me to uh, the truth. Was he like, you need to read this? Yeah, he was like, this is so gorgeous. Okay. It was like a New York Review of Books book. It was like, it had come out like maybe, I guess like two years before. But I had read The Leopard by Giuseppe Toma de Tomasi Lampedusa. And um, that's, a, that's like his most famous book. So I had read that and liked it. But so Nikki was like, you have to read this. So I was on the beach reading it, and it's about a man who falls in love with a mermaid. He tells the story of his past with this mermaid. It's like such a gorgeous story. It's like 90 pages, perfect size. Right. Yeah. Um, and so I started – I was like, shit. Like, Because I've never been a huge mermaid person. Like if <laughs> I were to choose a mythological creature, it would be the Pegasus. What about you? I'm trying to think. I don't even know. I mean, Pegasus for me is platonic. Like, if I were going to fuck a mythological creature, it would be like, I think maybe either like the Hound of Hell or like the Kraken, that giant octopus, you right. know, the giant squid. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Like the I, giant squid. That's the thing. When you said it, I was like, what, wait, what are the mythological creatures? It's a unicorn. Oh, right. there's so many. Is um, Pegasus a unicorn? Or is Pegasus, Pegasus, is a, a... Pegasus is a flying, okay. flying unicorn. Okay. Um, don't get it twisted. Yeah, right. <laughs> get this <laughs> shit <flies>. straight. <laughs> so, um, oh, there's so many. I mean, think about like all the Greek myths and think about like the Odyssey and then also like in other cultures too, right? Like multiple cultures. But so, um, or I'd like probably fuck like Apollo cause he's like a twink who would like, you know, like we'd like have sex and then he'd ignore me. <laughs> so like, that's my like ideal. <laughs> but so, um, but I really like after I read this book, I was like, wow, the the siren and human relationship really like embodies this thing that I like kind of haunts me about like, why is a love that like just can't be so much more delicious than a love that like very easily can be, right, right, you know, right. And, and by the way, like it brings this, uh, it just made me think like mermaid tales and I guess to a lesser extent, mermen tales have been with humanity for a long time long time a long ass what's time. the origin do we know what the origin of this is no i mean it's something greek is the is the first i know of you know that makes sense something greek but i'm sure but there's probably as long as people have lived by the sea right um but for me my historical knowledge only goes back to like ancient greece um but so um yeah so i was thinking about this and like 
I was like, but why is it always a mer- why is it always a mermaid? And why is, you know, it's always the merman, the the human, the man like walking off the back of the ship into his watery grave because like he's had like, you know, one fuck with this mermaid and like nothing on land will like ever compare to this. And I was like, well, what if it was like a merman? And what if it happened now? And what if it was Venice Beach? And then I was like, well, I can't write a novel. I was like, I have no idea. But then I thought about the way I wrote so sad today was I had dictated it. So I was like, well, what if I just dictate like three paragraphs a day and just like see what happens? And so I like committed to doing that. And then like nine months later, I had the first draft. How messy are these dictations? Oh, they're messy. Are they? Yeah. I don't like I've tried that and I'm like, I kind of need to see it. And I'm like, I don't, are you just telling yourself the story? Are you describing what happens in the story? Are you actually trying to compose the novel? No, I write the novel. You write the novel. But I don't go back and edit a goddamn thing. Like I, um, like my first round of edits, like while I'm, while I'm dictating, I don't touch anything. Um, cause that's how little I want my inner editor to be involved. Like I don't look at anything I've written. I just like dictate it. I just go and I go until I'm at the end. And how do you know what the end is? Well, cause I, I knew how it was going to end. And I had like a little outline that I made, you oh, know, you did. Okay. like, I, well, as I was writing, like the outline started to build its build itself. But, um, but then my first round of like sitting down editing is always like, cause I've now, I, I wrote so sad today that way I wrote the Pisces that way. And then I'm writing two more novels that way right now. And, um, I literally like the first round is like trying to figure out what the fuck I was trying to say. Cause Siri gets like half the shit wrong. Right. Um, and you know, like the other day something translated into that's so Raven. <laughs> And I was like, oh, I don't think that's what I was yeah, trying the, to the, say. Like these AI uh, experiences that we're having in like, I, you know, the relatively early days of AI can be, it's like, it's kind of a humiliation both for it you, is. but also for like Siri. It's like, Siri, what are you thinking? Like, yeah. This is a, this is a disaster that you've yeah. created for me. But, but then uh, at the same time, it's kind of amazing. It is. Like what the hell? Like I have someone like doing this, like, like translating and then yes, half of it's wrong, but like, this is this like. Like for me, like the geography has totally shaped the form. Like if I was still living in New York, I would have probably just stayed writing my poems on the subway. But then living in LA, I was in a car and that's why I started dictating. And so then, you're dictating in your car. Yeah. I was, I, I'm, I dictate in my car. I dictate when I'm out for, I like to dictate and run. It's really weird. So while you're running. Yeah. While I'm running or like the walking portion. I remember you fell one time while you were running. Yeah. Like but little... I was, that I was just checking Twitter. <laughs> I was like checking Twitter. Yeah. And I fell and like hurt my arm. Okay. So I want to, I, I want to, uh, dial back a little bit into the creative. Let's dial uh, back. Let's dial back. Cause I think this is interesting. Thanks. Um, and I feel like people listening who have writerly aspirations would probably appreciate knowing more. So like when you start with this idea to invert the mermaid mythology, make mm-hmm. the mermaid a merman, make the protagonist a woman, um, like, what did you have? I mean, I know you had that, but beyond that, in terms of story, what did you have when you set off into this dictation phase? Like, I know you talked about an outline, but like, how did you get a sense for the end? Were you using the, uh, what's this guy's name? Giuseppe? Oh, just, I thought you meant my merman. No. I'm like Theo. His <laughs> name is Theo. Um, Giuseppe Tomasi de Lampedusa. No, I didn't use that as an, as any kind of narrative skeleton. Like the whole the really the relationship between that book and my book is simply that that book really showed me like oh like the merman tale can be really fucking dark which i don't know why that never occurred to me because it's always it's often really dark but it was the way he wrote it i was like oh wow and it just it was the first time i realized how much that captures that like 
you know, that fantasy love that has just haunted me. Um, I, I just, it really, and especially at that point in my life, so long ago, it was like two and a half years ago, <laughs> like back in those but, days. Yeah, but you know what? Two and a half years, a lot can happen in a two lot and a half can years. Happen. But you know, at that point, like I still felt so haunted by this question and I kind of still do sometimes of just like, why can't fantasy be reality? And like, why, like why the whole, the whole reason why those sort of like instantaneous or one night stands are so full. Okay. Like. Here's, I'll explain it. I recently made a list of every person I've ever like dated, fucked, made out with, or just had like massive crush on. And I put an asterisk, asterisk next to like the people who I was most obsessed with. None of them were people who I was in long-term relationships. It was all people who, um, either that I had like longed for or had like a one night stand for, like, so I could write that fantasy around right, them. Right, right. Um, and I mean, I think there are probably people who are like healthier than I, who, who don't feel this way, but, um, I'm obsessed by it. So, um, so that was really the, that was, it wasn't like a narrative inspiration. It was more just like showing me what a siren or a mer person could be. And it doesn't have to be like the Ron Howard, like Tom Hanks diving into the ocean and swimming off, exactly. like holding hands with Daryl Hannah. Like this is like somebody kind of like almost ruined by their obsession Yeah. or like what, uh, so, romantic obsession, like romantic obsession has a dark side. It can devour you. Uh, it certainly can. And like, that's part of, I mean, and, and there's, you know, there's in the book, I say there's good and bad ways of vanishing. And it's like, I think part of the attraction is that like, we want to, well, I want to be, I want to disappear. I want out of myself, you know? So, um, when they talk about like love or sex as an addiction, you know, I'm not a doctor. I'm not going to like say, you know, how I feel about that. But if you want to use that metaphor, um, you know, the same way that like I have a desire to be vanished from myself and find a higher power in drugs or alcohol, I want to be vanished from myself in that feeling. It's not, it's so much less about the person and the way that I feel, you know? So when people ask me, is Theo the Merman real? I say, well, like he is as real as any person we're ever obsessed with. How well do we ever see that person we're obsessed with? Well, and, and like, how well do we know anybody we're intimate with period or friends with period? It's really hard to get to know another human being. And even people that you're married to or people that you're in relationships with or people you've been friends with for a long time, like so much of human existence happens psychologically and emotionally and internally. And like, you know, unless somebody's just really an open book. But even then, you know, there's so much, there's so much subsurface. Right. Cause we're unknown to ourselves, you know, like we're so, there are so many parts of ourselves that we keep like closeted off or like partitioned. I mean, because, you know, sometimes like I've had experiences in my life where I felt like the shade, like the, the, the blinds went up, you know what I'm saying? Like the shade was lifted and I could see some shit that like. I didn't want to see anymore. You know, like I could see some shit that I had kind of like, like, you know, I'm a poet. I'm always talking about death. Like I'm joking about death. Like death's my thing, you right. know, like whatever. It's just like where I dwell. You're wearing all black I'm wearing right all now. black. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, but when the times in my life, like when I've witnessed a death up close and then felt real haunt, like when death becomes so real and I felt really haunted by it and the anxiety of that for a couple months, like all I wanted was to just shut. I was like, please 
let's just shut the blinds, which is very different than when I'm at Sephora, like making a joke about, you know, like, well, I'm, you know, I'm fighting time with red lipstick and like, you know, <laughs> but we're all going to die. Like that sort of ability to kind of look at death or look at the fact that we're alive and it's real and that's so weird that that's such like a luxury and a privilege. But, um, you know, so I think that there are like parts of ourselves that like we don't, um, well, I would, I would interrupt and say, this is like, this is, this is what I think is fascinating about you. And I think it gets to the core of your appeal as a writer, as a, as a Twitter celebrity, you know, like all the, the reason why, uh, micro celebrity, your poetry, but yeah, no, I mean, come on, like what's 600,000 followers. That's big. Mm -hmm. And I, you know, a lot of people, uh, connect to that stuff. And I think, you know, for all of your candor about, um, you know, not necessarily knowing who we are, like, you know, being a mystery to our, our own selves, uh, all of your candor about, um, obsession and addiction and sobriety and spirituality and existential dread, you know, you're professing weakness, admitting confusion, fear, insecurity. But like we were talking about before we came on, you've also done an incredible amount of work in your life. Uh, which I don't think necessarily people know about in terms of sobriety, in terms of um, psychotherapy, in terms of meditation. You take good care of yourself. Ish, like, yeah. ish. But like you really are navigating this terrain and are able to do so, I think, with humor and insight, not only because you've lived it and because you're experiencing it and because you're sort of like riding these waves, but also because you're doing the work. Mm-hmm. And that part of it, I don't think gets talked about enough. So I'm mm. talking about it. Like for people listening, Melissa Broder has her shit together in this way more than just about anybody I know. Thanks, Brad. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it does. Um, as I said to you earlier, it takes a lot of sailors to keep this ship afloat. And you were saying, you know, and, and, it, and you were saying, well, you know, different people use different types of sailors. And, um, I do feel, I'd say my sobriety without, without going too much into what I do for that. Cause I like to keep that. Um, I, I sort of feel, I, I like to, um, uphold the tradition sort of, of the people who helped me and continue to help me, um, stay sober and that I am not the representative of them, you know, so you can always email me. Um, and I'll, I'll always tell you more about that. If you, if you're looking, um, to get sober and, and you're ready to get sober and you feel like how the fuck do I do this? You know, I could just tell you my experience. That's all I know. But, um, but I feel really blessed to have like thrown in the towel with that and to have been so desperate 13 years ago. And really to know that like without my sobriety, I don't have, I don't have shit. Like sometimes I feel like, Oh God, like, you know, my, my so sad today count is so depressing. And like, are people just gonna be like, well, sobriety is hell. But truth be told, like I wouldn't have a chance with like, any of the mental health stuff, any food stuff, any sex stuff, like, um, certainly not with trying to write if it was, I wouldn't have a chance if I wasn't sober. That's like, the foundation. That's for me, that is like the mothership, yeah. you know, and then yeah. everything else like, um, comes out of that. Well, and I, I kind of feel that way about meditation. Like mm-hmm. you got to have some sort of floor, mm-hmm. like ground under your feet or some, and I always say like some, it's not necessarily a belief system. It's just like something to do. Mm-hmm. I need that badly. Like I have to have something to do in like a ritualized way where I'm sort of like setting myself. Mm-hmm. And I think, uh, for people who can go to meetings or who have a therapist, 
uh, I, I sort of envy that in a way, especially like the community aspect of things where you have other people to lean on who are dealing with similar stuff. Um, but whatever it happens to be, like some people go for a hike, you know, some people do all of the above, but if you don't have that, like, uh, you know, just to continue like the really like clumsy sailor metaphor, like <laughs> then, then what are you doing? You know, like, I guess you're binge watching Netflix or, you know, you're diving into social media constantly. You're... Which like, I mean, we do, I, do. I am cobbling. I mean, I look, I am still trying to cobble together a very shitty party with the things that I have left to use, you know, <laughs> like alcohol and drugs are gone, like sexting with strangers and like, you know, like sexual encounters with like younger men like are gone because I'm not my marriage is monogamous again like it's been I think three and a half years that we've been not monogamous again we were open we were monogamous for five years open for five years and then now we've been so that's don't have that little party right um you know but I still have my Nicorette right um and I still have the internet and I still have shopping which is like lately been where I've been uh, channeling all of my um, book anxiety. I've been not the shopping so much as like the, uh, the idea that I'm not enough. You know, I suddenly, I don't have a personal style. I'm nothing. You know, I'm nothing. I, I must I think resolve you, you have this. very good style. Thanks, Brad. Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's not based in reality. You know what I'm saying? It's that it's the leading, the feeling of not being enough is the leader. And then it finds the ways to not be enough. So, um, but you know what, like that's being a human being, like who is going to reach for God? Like when there's like a hot boy standing there, like ready to go, or who's <laughs> going to reach for, you know, like when I'm suffering, like I'm going to just be like, I'm going to have my fucking pint of halo top every night. And and if I don't have my pint of halo top, I feel what's halo top. What is that? Oh, it's a delicious diet ice cream. Is it? <laughs> oh, you know. don't know halo top? <laughs> no. Oh, cause you're vegan. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm also, I can't eat dairy. Okay. Um, it doesn't agree with me. But okay. I get it. I mean, I know. And we were talking the other day, like you like to eat cheesecake in your car. Yeah. Mint diet mini cheesecakes. Okay. Three of them behind the wheel in the Gelson's parking lot. <laughs> How regularly are you doing this? Oh, every day. Really? Every day. You eat three cheesecakes? They're mini. Day? They're oh. mini diet cheesecakes. They have like maybe a hundred calories in them. Okay. So I each. So, cause I remember, you know, going back. I like uh, to eat them in succession because if I only have one, then it's so sad when it's over. Right. But if there's three. Hey. I was, it used to be set. two. Yeah. That's a set. So now you're bumped it up to three. I bumped it up to three. Cause it was like, you know, cause I, I'm an, I am the addict's addict. Like I will turn like anything good, delicious, anything where there's any joy, like, but see, like the thing is, is like, I know this and I think I have like the, I have like what you said about doing the work. I, I'm my axle. I'm like a car. My axle is like not right. It's just not right. You know, for whatever reason, it's just not right. So I'm constantly veering left and right on the highway. Like I'm never going to go straight. That's just not how I'm going to be. But I have these, I guess like, you know, in bumper bowling, I have these like, uh, pads on the sides of the highway in place so that it seems like if I keep the pads in place, you know, and I keep doing my practices, then I don't go off the highway. Right. I'm never going to go straight. Right. But you know, I have, but I, but I'm veering, I'm veering and, but hopefully I'm not going to like go over the railing unless I take away the pads. Right. And then I'm very easily go over the railing, which but can you, happen but at any time. you're so self-aware. That's the thing. Like <clears> you, like even as you're like eating the cheesecake or like, you know what it is. I you, know what I'm doing, but self-knowledge, what does it avail us? I don't know. I, I mean, mean, maybe a little. Some people are totally unconscious of themselves. Okay. Yeah. Like my mother. I mean, yes. But I, I think that like when the way that what I was saying about like the difference between like joking about death and talking about death versus like that realization that we're going to die and not to get too dark. 
Um, no, it's fine. I like dark. Okay. So <laughs> like, I think that the self-knowledge and the awareness, that's like the wit, that's like the humor, that's the joking about death. But like where the rubber meets the road is like, you know, the real, like the three o'clock in the morning, you wake up and it's like really dark inside and outside and you want to go to home and you don't know where home is. Yeah. I know that that happens to me because like, I, I have, you know, like a relatively regular habit of popping awake at like three or four. Mm. It's never good. Mm-mm. What Not- do you do when you wake up? Like, do you try to go back to sleep or do you go online? I, I sometimes will pick up my phone. Like if I, cause I don't want to wake my wife up. I don't want to like turn the TV on. That's what I would really like to do. Just mm-hmm. like watch like ESPN and like substitute whatever's in my head with like just, you know, numbing highlights or whatever. But, uh, I'll usually just like, I'll go on my phone if I'm really awake Otherwise, I'll just lie there. I'll try to like do some breathing. Sometimes I'll drift back off to sleep. What usually happens is, is if I can stay awake until like the earliest hints of daybreak, like once the outline of the curtain starts to like turn that light blue, like then for some reason I have an easier time going back to sleep. But when it's dark, because the pressure's off, the pressure's off, the it's pressure's like, off. Fuck it, it's day, you know. Yeah. So I'll go back for like another forty-five minutes of like semi-sleep, but it's just. You know, every worry in your life starts to just, uh, you know, present itself to you in those moments. I think that's very common. And, uh, you know, you get to know it, I guess. And hopefully you don't take it too seriously. Do you, now, do you do your meditation? Because I, okay, so let's talk about meditation for a second. Sure. Um, because, so for years I had a meditation practice, but it was always just like 10 minutes. Very much just like I was doing it as almost something that I was like at first it started out amazing um, and and I found it really helpful and I think like it has always helped me but by like the end like by the past I guess like two years I felt like I was just doing it to cross it off my list like I'm a Virgo so I'm like oh doing the thing that like I need to help me stay sober and like you know have a moment of pause and not like destroy my life um and but I, I didn't feel there and so for my birthday this year in August I I did the thing that I was like so against, which was spent money on my spiritual education. Cause I was always like, fuck these people, you know, like I'm not paying anyone for the, right, you know, right, right, right. But, um, I did. And now I have like, a, I'm doing a new modality and it's like 20 minutes in the morning, 20 You're minutes at night. Doing TM. I'm doing TM. I, you know, it's so funny cause I'm like, and it's great. It's a good modality. I don't think the modality matters so much as just like that. I invested in the time and the educate, you know, like I've been also I had to pay. So I'm like, well, I'm at least like doing this modality for a year. Cause I have to like pay it off. Justify you know? the expense. Yeah. Well, but I think psychologically that has some impact yeah. because when you pay for something and it's not like, um, a trifle, you know what I'm saying? Like you actually had to fork over some cash. Oh, I forked. What does it cost? Like a couple grand? Well, it's based on your, um, income. Oh, right. So it depends. Okay. Whatever you're making like at that point, but it's, it's like not, per- it's not like super cheap. No, it's not. So it's expensive enough for you to be like, okay, if I'm doing this, yes. I'm doing this yeah. psychologically. And then I think there's something to, you know, you get your mantra. I've talked to people who've done TM on the show. I talked to uh, Claire Hoffman, uh, a friend of mine who wrote a book. Uh, she lives near you. She's a person. She's a friend of mine who said, who I said lives near you, but she, oh. she was, grew up in that town in Iowa that the Maharishi, like that was where his like TM village or, oh, wow. You know. So she grew up like way deep into it. Interesting. Um, but I, you know, I've always been fascinated with it. It makes sense to me because you have, um, like a real structure yeah, and you have your mantra and a system. I mean, you can speak to it better than I, I've never done it, but yeah. I mean, that's the thing. I'm like, I'm not, I'm definitely not like, I think a lot, I think a lot of people come into TM not a lot. I don't know. People, it seems, come into TM having never meditated before. So 
So, but for me, it was kind of different. It was like, but what it did was it just breathed like a whole new life into my meditation practice. And also 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes at night, that's like four times what I was doing. I feel like I'm always fucking meditating now. Like, I'm like, I cannot believe it is time to meditate again. Yeah, right. Like, uh, but, uh, but the reason why I was asking what time, what you do is because I too wake up at like four in the morning, <clears throat> three, four. And, um, it used to be I had a rule for myself that was like, you have to do your meditation before you go online. But now because it's a 20 minute medit, like I, sometimes I fall back asleep. Like it's weird. I never know kind of when to do my morning one. Like, should I do it then? Or do I? Right. So I was curious when you do yours. Well, I do. I, I'm really good. I do 20 minutes in the morning and 20 minutes in the evening at least. Mm. Here's what I find. Like uh, the morning one I always do because mm-hmm. I get up first thing. I get up before everybody else in the house and I can have some quiet. I love that time. But you don't do it during your 3 a.m. insomnia. No, because I'm one of these people, if I get up, I can't go back to sleep. Mm. Maybe, I I guess maybe if I really got into a deep meditation, it would help calm my mind and I could get back into bed and maybe fall back asleep. But the odds are like, if I get out of bed and onto my feet, like I'm just up. But a couple of things I would say is like in the morning meditation, if I'm sleepy, um, I meditate with my eyes like half open. That's sort of new. I used to be eyes closed, hmm. um, but I now it's like kind of like lazy eye. Like they're open, but they're just not focused. And if I sit for a while, like 20 minutes is good. Even longer is better for me. Like sometimes I'm so busy in the head that like it takes me longer. And I think that maybe is one of the tricks of like the 20 minute rule is that once you kind of get into the groove of sitting there longer, you start to realize like, oh, things are settling. Like this is actually feeling good. And like, I'm starting to get it, but it like, you start to like, oh, maybe I'll just extend it, you know? And then suddenly like, I'll do like an hour or I'll do 40 minutes, like an hour on a very unusual day. But if I get up early enough, no one else is awake. I'll just sit there. Um, and I find that if I do a good meditation in the morning, even if I'm sleepy, there is something kind of rejuvenating about it. Um, not exactly the same as sleep, but not that different. Do you mm. ever find that? Like, yeah. Yeah. Like it sort of like refreshes the the brain and the body, it's sort of, sort of sleep-like, even though that's not the purpose of meditation. You're not supposed to go to bed, but, um, I find it like really relaxing. And then it's harder for me, especially with two kids, like right around dinner time, to find the 20 minutes for the second one. I often do it. I don't bat a thousand, mm-hmm. um, which bums me out. Like I'd like, I allow myself two missed practices a week. Oh, you do? Well, like one more, you know, it doesn't matter if there are two mornings, two nights. Fucking failure. No, it's good. I have to tell you, I, as someone who's like very OCD about shit, one thing I do like about TM is that, um, everything's good. You know, you have thoughts. It's great. You're, you know, you're, you're clearing out toxic shit. Like you, you know, you fall asleep. That's great. You know, like everything is great. And it's like the, literally the opposite of the way I talk to myself, wherein nothing is great. Like you are not enough on every level. So it's, I like that. Um, but yeah, it's interesting what you were saying about the 20 minute thing. And it's like, right, once you enter the deliciousness, which also I don't necessarily think that like you have to, I mean, we know like you don't have to feel good in a meditation for it to be an effective meditation. No, like, a lot of times always, you don't. And no. I, I think one of the problems, and this should be said, not that like I'm any kind of expert. I don't think either of us are. I'm not an expert. Yeah. Really in anything actually. <laughs> yeah. But I've done it a lot. I've, right. I've sat there hundreds and hundreds of times yeah. and like I know what the experience is often like. And, um, I think sometimes people come into it expecting bliss, which can sometimes be there, Yeah, but if it's not, it's okay. Like, right. They're like, Oh, I can't meditate. Cause I think too much. I'm like, that's meditation. Yeah. Like you're like aware of like the, 
beating rampage of your mind and you're like shit this is what my mind is like all day whoa yeah yeah but one when you do though like those time when you do get to that deliciousness I like it. It's like, oh my God, I could stay here forever. And I kind of believe, like, I think the deliciousness is always already there, right? It's yeah. like, it's there. It's always there. Like the sun. Yep. But like so many clouds. So many clouds. So much shit. We like, you know, and, and it's that reaching. It's like as a human, like, I'm, I'm not going to, th- I'm not, I don't remember that the deliciousness is under there. And if I just like strip away and don't add, like, I'm always probably till I die going to be like, no, I need to add shit. Like, no, nope, need this purse. <laughs> like if I, if I get this purse, I'm going to be a whole person like right. oh, out of halo top, like must drive compulsive, you know, like I, because it's, I'm a human being, you know, it's like how it is. But, um, but it is always like. There's always that moment when you like get to that delicious, the, the, oh yeah. It's like, oh yeah. Oh yeah. Right. I contain this. Whoa. And, and I think too, like, um, like we talked earlier about how you're self-aware. And so like, even if you're driving to go get Halo Top or go get your cheesecake or if I'm diving into Twitter, whatever it is, Mm -hmm. like, even if there's just like a split second of awareness where you're like, I'm diving into Twitter, Mm. I'm going for the dopamine. Like here I am distracting myself. Like even that, like just that little bit of space that you create by being aware, I think is an outgrowth of, of consistently sitting down and watching your own thinking and becoming aware that there is, um, something deeper and there is like a witnessing presence to this constant mind chatter. And sometimes you get hooked and you get lost in it and it rules you. That's sort of the human condition. Uh, but I think slowly over time, there gets to be just a little bit more space. I get more consistent at noticing when it happens. I catch myself. I reel myself in. Like this morning, Twiggy was barking and I was like trying to like make breakfast and get the house straightened up and blah, blah, blah. And like, she was like outside, just like incessantly barking at like a neighbor dog. And I went outside and I had a dish towel in my hand and I threw the dish towel and I was like, Twiggy, you know? (laughs) And then she like cowered and I picked her up and I like brought her in and I caught myself and I breathed and I was like, I put her down and I was like, I grabbed her snout like very gently and I was like, try to be quieter, please. (laughs) But like, had I not, I, you know, I was very proud of myself because normally I would just be like, I would grab the dog by the collar and like throw her in her crate or whatever, you know, not violently, but I just, I caught myself. That's a lot of what I'm trying to do with it. I think is just not get hooked. And And that might be like all we have, right? Because it's like with like the meditation that I, I was doing for all those years, like, um, you know, prior to the TM, what was it? What was it? Oh, like my, the Broder style. Oh, okay. It was like the Broder, <laughs> the Broder methodology, which is like sort of a hybrid of schools, the school of YouTube randos and the school of like me going to like three like workshops in New York that were like free where like everyone was like covered in ink and like had really cool hair. And I, it was a Buddhist one. And I was like, isn't this supposed to be about non-attachment? Like, why is everyone so adorned and cute? Like, aren't we like, isn't this supposed to be? Yeah. Like, Everyone's seem, got a stylist. Yeah. Like you seem pretty attached to your aesthetic, you know, like, and like, you know, like yoga shit. I mean, it was just, it was a hybrid. It was a hybrid of whatever, um, of modalities, but you know, all, but all that time, I mean, meditation, it's always helped me so much because, but I say, I'm like, I'm like never going to be enlightened. Like I like, it's basically like I go from being like a hundred percent like or maybe like ninety nine percent like self centered and impulsive and like caught in my movie to like 
96%. Hey, that's progress. And that's it. You know, it's, but that 3% is like what keeps me alive. Yeah. You know, because without it, like there's no break. Well, you have like, you have these stories. Um, and I'm forever obsessing about these stories of people who have usually some sort of, uh, you know, a crisis event in their life that they mm-hmm. will then say led to their uh, breaking through and, and their enlightenment experience where they were like suicidal or they had a nervous breakdown or like some heavy shit happened or like they're on death row. And then like in the last week before their execution, they became like beatific. Mm-hmm. And I'm always like, maybe that's the way like get this shit over with, you know, like press fast forward go completely nuts and then like live the rest of your life in some sort of like on some sort of higher plane. The vast majority of people I think are working day by day, millimeter by millimeter, making this very slow, but if you keep at it, hopefully steady incremental progress. And that's kind of my wager. It's like, okay, if I wind up living out my lifespan, like if I live some long life and I keep doing this by the time I'm like 90, I will hopefully be like relatively calm and you know, uh, I'll have my shit together, you mm-hmm. know, as well as one can in like the, uh, existential circumstances that we find ourselves as human beings. Like, I don't know what else to do. And you talk about, you know, I don't know, the human condition and whatever, however it manifests for you, whether you're dealing with like, um, obsessions or, you know, depressions or whatever it is. Uh, it just makes sense to me. Like, even if you don't know TM, even if you don't, have a guru, the very basic act of just sitting down and getting quiet twice a day Just shut the fuck up. Yeah, you don't need a modality. <laughs> you really don't just, just watch your breath. Just what do. And every time you catch yourself thinking, go back to your breath. I mean, it's, it's not, it's not complicated in theory. It's hard to do in practice mm. and it's hard to just get yourself to stop. Like, do you feel that? Like, yeah. Cause I don't, who wants to be with themselves? Some people, I guess I don't want to be with myself all my whole life has been an exercise in trying to escape myself. You right. know, that is like my life's, you know, and so to be with myself. Trying to escape myself. My entire life a memoir. Is a memoir. <laughs> <laughs> trying, yeah. And like, um, yeah, no. So I think that it's it's like, ooh, I have to be, pr- I'm going to be present oh, with myself. Like the, my, my mind is not a good neighborhood. You right. know what I'm saying? Like you don't really want to be, like I don't want to be there. Right. Like my mind, it's yeah. like the last place I want to be. And isn't it amazing? Okay. So like you do the two, we both do the, the morning and the evening on a good day. And it would, it would make sense that the morning meditation would be a little bit easier because you're waking up fresh. It's mm-hmm. first thing. You haven't been online. Maybe you haven't gotten like inundated with emails. But it's it's also true, <laughs> at least for me. Like I can roll out of bed at five in the fucking morning after like sleeping well, and I will be immediately just like there's already shit. Oh, I the wake committee up with is it. awake. It's awake. The committee has been awake <laughs> since like for at least an hour, plotting like everything. Like yeah, letting you know all the things that are gonna go wrong. Um, definitely like who to be resentful at. You know what I'm saying? Like all the conversation, like, okay, well we need to retaliate about this. Yeah. And like, usually the people to be resentful at, I find that like for the most part, I'm, I'm much more of a suicidal person than a homicidal person. Like most of my rage is directed inward, but that, that those early morning moments, like there are, there are conversations to be had with people in my head, yeah, you know, you're, you're litigating, you're trying to like win an argument. Yes. Yeah. All that shit. Yeah. No, the committee has been awake, you and, know, it's doing its thing. Okay. So we agree there. Yeah. And then for the evening meditation, like what I'll find it just to get back to this act of stopping, which is like one of the first principles 
of meditation. It's a, it's called shamatha, I think is just to get super like crunchy about it, but mm-hmm. that means stopping and you have to stop in order to observe. And in the morning it's a little bit easier cause it's early and it's still kind of dark out and it's like the perfect time, you know, the house is quiet at, in the evening after like a full day of shit and the internet and emails and phone calls and worries and conversations and running across town and going to target or whatever it is, stopping is so much harder for me at that point. Mm. Like it's, do you find that or no? Well, technically I'm quote unquote supposed to be meditating at like five, like TM is like morning and like afternoon. Okay. But I always meditate at like 11 PM and I like can't get over it. And I actually, when I I was at a group meditation recently and I was like, yeah, so, you know, I find myself stopping like my meditation a couple minutes early to go eat my halo top. And they're like, what time are you meditating? And they're like, and then like this guy was trying to like explain to me why you like should be meditating on like an emptier stomach. And I was like, all right, man. Like, I was like, no, like the fact that I'm even doing this at all. I was going to say like, if you're doing 20 and 20, if you have a belly full of halo top, I'm like, honey, (laughs) like, what are you expecting? Um, well, no. And it's like you were saying, well, about the beatific thing. I mean, the more grandiose people are about the spiritual experience and the more certain they are that their way is the way, the more I'm like, ew. Yeah. Um, because I looked for so long, like for so many years, um, in my twenties, like, I mean, I would be like wasted reading these like spiritual texts or like, you know, my whole psychedelic like, and I know you had some psychedelic years. Sure. My whole psychedelic quest. And the thing is, I, and I would, I would come to these places where like I knew, you know, like I, I knew the truth. But then afterwards, I couldn't tell you what the truth was. And with the psychedelic stuff, like I don't, I, I'm like really grateful for all those experiences. And I don't think they're fake at all. Like I do think they're real spiritual experiences. But for me, they are, they're a preview. You know what I'm saying? They're a preview. I can't like live there. Um, I also can't remember what the fuck happened. Yeah. They're very slippery that way. It's like, I'm like, oh, I think it was about my own innocence. Like, wait, I've hated myself my whole life. And actually I'm a child of the universe, just like everyone, but I'm not sure. And I'm still going (laughs) to eat like the fat free ranch dressing after (laughs) the trip is over because like, you know, I just like, I don't love myself that much. Like, come on. You know, it's like, it's like it, uh, it feels really real, but very slippery. I have spent like the last God knows how many years. I mean, all the years of this podcast, probably talking about how fascinated, how fascinating I find psychedelics and how I would love to like dip back into those waters in in the right circumstances. Yeah. But I I never can. I have kids. It's like, there's never like, where's the space to do that? I'm also like a little afraid to be honest. Like, I feel like with rivers, like situation health wise, like if I, if I take a bunch of mushrooms or something like that could go really sideways. I'll start worrying. You, know, like, you need set and setting. Right? I need set and setting. I also would love to have like a couple of medical professionals standing by with some like hardcore sedatives. Yeah. <laughs> well, like, you, you probably need Valium too. I could just like tap out be like, doc, okay, enough. Like yeah. un- uncle, like, and he could just like inject me. And then I would like wake up the next day and be like, okay, well. The but, DMT did not work out. <laughs> the DMT did not work out. DMT sounds good to me because it's like 15 minutes. So even what about it, like ayahuasca? Ayahuasca sounds... Pff, it's a long, that's a, that sounds like a long, and you got to vomit and like, you I like know. poop your pants. And I'm like, okay, you know, I know. And also, we... well, the thing about ayahuasca too, is like everyone, like people are so like, you know, like you must do it. I, I mean, I can't, I, that is not an, as a sober person for me, that's not an option for me. Um, I'm going to have to sit out the psychedelics for the, for one day at a time for the rest of my life. But you did but, it. You did it. Yeah. I'm so glad I did. You had but the experience. Not ayahuasca though, but peyote back in the day. 
You did peyote. Oh, I did peyote. Oh, really? Did you puke? Yeah, it was just. It tastes so disgusting. Okay, yeah. I never did peyote. It was cool. That was good set and setting. That was in uh, New Mexico. That's where you should be doing peyote. That's where you should be doing. Right, you don't want to be doing. You're not doing peyote at like. The, like the Beverly Center Mall. <laughs> no, <not doing laughs> but, any. but you know, like I don't, I have nothing against like, like I love drugs and I think drugs are like great for people who aren't addicts. And like, um, I'm like always very happy when people are like on drugs. I love being around drunks too, because I'm like, Oh, now I'm not responsible for anything I say. Cause they don't remember anything. So it <laughs> really eases my social anxiety. Okay. So, but stop here. Cause like, I, I think drugs, especially psychedelics, mm-hmm. um, have can have real value and can be informative very uh, i feel like alcohol is the least elegant mm. of the popular drugs it has like a i mean i think if you really weigh it weigh it out it has like a lot of corrosive effects on humanity mm. it turns people violent it makes people yeah i never understood why s- weed was illegal sl- if alcohol is legal yeah weed seems That's elegant. so stupid weed seems elegant to me weed is a psychedelic mm-hmm. i think it's like a mild psychedelic sure. um i don't know like i i can i i can make a much more compelling argument in favor of weed and psychedelics than I ever could for alcohol, cigarettes, uh, cocaine, mm-hmm. uh, you know, I guess ecstasy is, what is it? An ethne entheogen? What do you call those well, drugs? The thing with like, if you take like, I was never a big Coke person. Um, I, I did, like get, I was into speed for a couple of years. Cause it helped me stay skinny. But then like once my anxiety was like in full throttle physically, like there's no, like, do not give me an upper, like, please. But, um, I like, I like, give me, give me a nice opiate. Like, mm, yeah, delish. But, um, like I love an opiate, but, um, you know, but things like opiates or, um, you know, speedy things like when you're on them, there's usually for me or even like with like Molly and stuff, like sometimes it's a little rough on the come up, but other than that, like there's no sort of, you don't really have to grapple with any darkness. Whereas like with psychedelics, like there's door i mean at, certainly after you come down you have to grapple with the darkness of no longer being high but like while you're on it i think what makes those drugs so perhaps like more dangerous or in terms of um what you're saying is that like there's no like when you're on psychedelics like you know there can be a dar- there can be a downside there can be a dark side on it you know like you kind of whereas like like when you're on coke like it doesn't matter what's going on in reality like I, it see, has no here's what i don't like about coke any, I don't like cook people. Yeah, and any and any drug where you're hiding in a bathroom, you know, like it's like four people packed into a bathroom, and everyone's oh God, like, "I love hiding in bathrooms." <laughs> I, I'm, I mean, I've been sober for 13 years, and like all I do is hide in bathrooms <laughs> at parties with, with my phone. No, not with others though. Yeah. Just me and my and Twitter. I just that was always my beef mm. back in my youth, and like when I was around that stuff, like not a ton, but I would just be like, "What? what if you're going to do it, do it in front of everybody else, right? Like you can smoke a joint in front of people, yeah, but for some reason, like you got to go hide in a bathroom to do cocaine. That's a bad sign. And then everybody always wants more, and it's always like this. It makes people sort of like uh, it's yeah. like Lord of the Rings. Like they want the ring, they want the precious, <laughs> like they want the fucking you know. Yeah, do you have more? Like it, and it, and it, it's like almost immediately. Even people who aren't like addicts, right. you know, like even people who never like who just dabble in coke or are like partiers, but don't you know, just don't have that gene. I don't like it. Coke makes you look like it. Coke turns you know. Coke makes you makes you an addict. Yeah, I mean, I'm like honestly, I've had to in my own sobriety too, just like. I really have like, I'm like, God bless you, you know, like God, because I never want to be that person who's like, well, like I've just, you know, that like for me, I must, I have to be sober, you know, like if I want to like stay alive. I mean, I I don't even, you know what the thing is? I don't even know that I want to stay alive. If I could just be like gone, that would be fabulous. I just, I don't want to deal with the dying process, but like 
my luck, like, I wouldn't just die. I would, like, traipse around the earth, like, haunted and have, like, a miserable next 40 years, you know, like, just a life of all craving and there never being enough of that thing. So it's like, I gotta be sober. And you gotta be sober. And I think you gotta stick it. You gotta stick it out. Like, I, I always go back to a conversation I had on this show uh, with Jennifer Michael Hecht. She wrote this book called Stay, mm. which is like this treatise about why... Uh, I know her poetry. Yeah, like suicide. It's all about suicide and yeah. how we kind of owe it to each other uh, as like a human family to stick around. And it like really breaks down. Well, that's a lot of pressure. Uh, but no, but I mean, I, you know, I don't want to misrepresent it. It's been a while I'm since like, I read so it. that's so mean. Like, don't peer pressure me to stay alive. <laughs> no, but it's like she really breaks it down like um, with like academic rigor, like what the effects are and how uh, how much we need. Uh, we need each other. Like even like n- not just like our family or our spouse or our close friends, mm. but like, you know, how much of an impact, like when you read about a suicide, like some, you know, musician or artist or someone, you know, on Twitter and it'll just be like, it hits you. You go, mm-hmm. oh, and some part of you, like a, it can be contagious. It can activate like those sort of self-destructive tendencies in people, or it can exacerbate a depression or give some sort of like permission psychology. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Like, um, but then uh, I think that, um, you know, when people do hang on um, and decide to, you know, tough it out, embrace, um, do the hard work, like, I think that's contagious too. Mm. And like gives us, you know, I find strength in that, you know, it's like, okay, mm. I don't know. I just feel like there's a, a deep link and maybe it goes back to what you were talking about earlier, where there's like that sun behind all the clouds mm-hmm. and like that sun maybe contains us all mm-hmm. like not to get too woo woo. Yeah. I mean, look, I do not judge anyone who takes their own life. I really don't. And I, um, I don't know. I mean, I don't feel if you're, I mean, if, if, if they're suffering that much, you know, like they don't like what, like, why is it their job to be an example? You know, like, I mean, human suffering, like, I don't know. I can't gauge what someone else's suffering is. Right. Um, in my own experience, I will say that every time I'm in like a depression or every time I'm in a cycle of really bad panic attacks, I always think it's never going to end. And I have come out thus far, come out the other side each time. But, um, but that's just me. Yeah. I don't know. You know, I don't know what people's thresholds are. Um, I don't know how sick other people are. I don't know the duration, you know, like I can't, I don't know. I, I can't. I don't know. I don't feel, I don't feel very triumph of the human spirit regarding suicide stuff just because I'm like, maybe somebody just like, couldn't, it was just too much. It was just too much. And like, who am I to say it's not too much, but there is also anyone to say what's not too much. I know, but there is also, I think, uh, I can also be, I mean, not all the way persuaded, but I do sometimes think like, wow, when you're in a suicidal state of mind, like you're just thinking about yourself, it's almost like. You're so, it's all closed and mm-hmm. you can't even think about other people. Right. So on some level, it is like a selfish mode where you're, you're so self-focused, you know, yeah. it would be, it's hard to be suicidal and like thinking of loved ones at the same time Yeah. in a compassionate way, you know? Yeah. And, um, but you know, I, I don't, but it's in, a, but usually you're very sick. Yeah. I you don't know, sit like in you're, judgment. You're very ill. That's the thing. And it's like. Well, and I, I just want to, like before, I for, before I forget, I want to say too, and like, this is something it's hard to think of other people when you're really feeling really sick. Yeah. And I, I feel like, cause I've had a friend, you know, one of my good buddies committed suicide when I was in college, I've spoken about it. I spoke about it with Jennifer and on, and on this show before had a huge impact on me. 
And over the years, like you become, once you lose someone in that way, I think you become extra sensitive to mm-hmm. those kinds of losses. You're like, Oh, another one. Like I know what those survivors are feeling and blah, blah, blah. And, mm-hmm. um, when people are always like, I wish she would have said something. I wish he would have said something. I w-, there's always a part of me that's like, yeah, I didn't know my buddy Judd was like that depressed, but in hindsight, I was also like 20 smoking pot, like not paying careful enough attention. There were signs. Mm. Um, I don't may, I don't hold myself like, uh, you know, I don't live in some sort of awful state of guilt over it, but there is a part of me that sometimes bristles a little bit when it's like, you know what? People shouldn't have to shout, like pay attention to your friends and family better. And I'm saying mm. that to myself too. Do you know what I'm saying? I, I just, I feel like sometimes people, um, don't necessarily have enough sensitivity to the people around them. Don't really listen enough. I, I, that's what I want to be better at, you know, is, is really tuning into people. And mm. like, if you, and not only that, like, it's not just a matter of tuning in and being aware of somebody who might be having a hard time or having a rough day or having a rough period of life, but having the courage to like get in there and be like, Hey, you know, like, how you doing? You know, even if it's an awkward conversation, even if they might shut you down, I want to be the person who like steps in and does something. So often I think when we're confronted with people who might be struggling, we shy away and we shy away because we don't know quite what to say. Mm-hmm. We don't want to make things worse, but it's like, did you get in there? Mm-hmm. Like it's I, scary. It's you scary. know, it's, I mean, it's funny. Cause like, even as when I'm, when I'm in a place of like having really bad panic attacks, um, I always say I, I love when someone else is anxious or having a panic attack. Cause I'm like, then I can't have one. It's the best, you know, like when someone else like, which is why, like, I think, you know, because I have permission to have one, so I don't have to have one. But, um, so there is something like I do love about sort of, um, being of service in that way. Right. Cause it's like, I get my mind off of me, right? you know, and I can, and all, and my suffering can be of like, of use, like, wow, like that's cool, you know, but, but there's also, I think something scary, um, particularly about illness when it's like, when you're not in it, um, there, there can be that fear of like, you don't want to go back there. You don't want to go back to the feelings that you felt. Um, and I think, and I think a lot of times people just don't know what to do. Yeah. You know, we just, we don't know how, we don't know. Um, I mean like with my husband's health, I mean, he has had a neuroimmune disease for so many years and every time he has a relapse of his illness and, and this was a tough year. Like it was, and it's so funny. I never talk about this, but I mean, October to March, um, he probably left the house like nine times. Jesus. It was a real dark. It was a bad one. It was a really bad relapse. Cause he had a relapse and then he had a relapse on top of the relapse and then he had a relapse on top of the relapse. So, so what does it, it look? He just bedridden. He just feels lethargic. Yeah. He feels lethargic. He can, and they can move around the house. I mean, um, well it's like mono. So he has a fever, yeah. swollen glands, um, sore throat, like brain fog, um, and like n- no energy, but instead of mono, which I don't know how long mono lasts, like two weeks or whatever, his is like, it's usually three months from like start to finish. But the problem was, is that it like, there were like, he had like basically three relapses that kind of overlapped each other uh. in a way. Yeah. It was a nightmare. But anyway, but every time, like at this point in my life, like I'm pretty good. I mean, I probably kid myself, but I'm pretty good at like handling the physical, like when he has a relapse, I'm like, you know, I don't expect that he's going to be able to go to like 
a wedding with me or like all that stuff or like I know we're not going to be like going out for dinner you know for like a long time like our life is going to be confined to my home like I get that um we're not gonna be doing things together like that but it's really his psychic pain that I still like even as a person who like deals with her own depression like and I don't it's like I don't know what to do like I get nervous and I'm like and and I think part of that too is I notice in myself I'm like, well, like I should I, I should be able to fix this. I should. It's about me, right? right. Like my own selfishness. I'm like, if I was X enough, then he wouldn't be in the psychic pain. Or the other thing is, is I'm like, I just don't fucking feel like dealing with it. You know, I'm like, I don't I don't want to process yet another day of feelings. Right. You know, I I don't want to. I don't feel like it. I want to check the fuck out. And like, so it's, it's, so while I'm sure I do have a lot of shit around like what it means to be with someone who's like physically sick, like it's, it's still to me, the part where that's the hardest for me is like that psychic darkness. Like that is, I'm like, oh, like, God, do I have to go in? Like, can't we just like, and, and I find myself becoming very superficial and very distant, um, because I'm like, I can't, like, I, I don't want to. I don't want to. Yeah, yeah. Don't make me go there. I don't <laughs> right. want to. I have enough of that, you know? Right, right. But, like, that's, I guess, what it means to show up for love is responsibility. Hey, and that's not no small thing. And no, you, you and know, that's probably why I want to escape into, like, you know, a fantasy world where, like, there's you know. But I would anyway. Even if my husband was, like, perfectly well. <laughs> yeah, right. Even if I was single, whatever. I would still have these issues. Like, Well, you know what I do? Too. Like, I'm confronted with illness or somebody struggling. Like you, you've, you've probably experienced this with, with me where like, I have this tendency to want to like get in there and sort of mansplain. Oh, you're, do you ever need <laughs> to talk, buy a fan? Yeah, we talked about this last time. Do you ever My need to buy a fan? <laughs> but, um, Brad will show you the way. Yeah. Like, like, like earnestly wanting to help, but maybe like overzealously. And so if somebody's like, I'm depressed or I'm having a panic attack or I'm, you know, feeling sad or, but like sometimes I'll get in there and I'll start trying to fix people and I'll start trying to, you know, and you got to catch yourself like. I think the most important thing to do, especially if somebody is willing to be forthcoming, is just sit there, shut the fuck up and listen. That's exactly right. Or just even if they're not, and, and if they're not willing to be forthcoming, sometimes just being like, I'll hang out with you. Yes. Just be there. Like in, in, in your embodied presence can sometimes be, I think, healing. Especially for someone who's ill because, I mean... Without talking, so I really have never, like, I wrote that essay about, though, about my husband's health. So, um, you know, I do feel like the secret's out, but, you know, but I've never wanted to, like, take his narrative as my own. But, you know, I do have a lot of experience with being, I, well, I, I would never say caretaker because I'm, like, the worst fucking nurse and caretaker. <laughs> like, like, if you have a, like, progressive, chronic, uh, immune disease, neuroimmune disease, you do not want to be married to me. Like, <laughs> let me tell you, which is probably why. Um, if one were to believe that things happen for a reason, which like, I don't really do, but I, I kind of see it as like, you know, like the way I see everything else, like astrology and stuff, like you can buy in or you can opt out. But if one were to buy into that idea, um, that's why I'm with him. You know, that's like, this is a lesson I have to learn, which is like how to be present with another human being and like not be scared to go into, you know, I mean, all this shit, but, um, I don't know what, I don't know what you're saying. Well, no, just like, I think like, uh, um... oh, but like, I never want to take on the narrative as my own, but oh. A person who's sick, like, feels so, from what I, what, what he describes, it's so isolating. Right. It's so isolating. The world is going on without you. And so to go hang out, it's good. Yeah. 
Go I'll, hang out. I'll come hang out with him. Come sit. Yeah. You would? Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah, you should come hang out with Nikki. He's yeah. actually, I think, a little better right he now. See, he seemed great the other yeah. night. I mean, well, that's the other thing, too. When he's around people, he's like a puppy. Like, when he starts to get a little better, it's like, because he's been like, in like mostly isolation, he said some friends have come to town, but mostly in isolation since October. That's yeah, that's hard on a person. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah, I couldn't do it. Right. You know, so it's good that he, uh, good that you guys had a little party and I just hope he, and does he feel better in like the warmer weather? Does, how do you predict this? Yeah. I mean, no, it's please. Any time of year it can happen. Um, the, the warmer weather helps and that's why we moved to Los Angeles. Right. That's why we left New York. Right. Um, because he couldn't, and also it's just very hard. New York's a very hard place to be sick, but you know, in the beginning when we were first together, his relapses, um, would be like once every, th- uh, they would be, um, every three months. Cause you know, we've been together for a long time. It's been almost 15 years. Wow. Yeah. Real long. That's How long have you and Carrie been together? We've been together almost 15 years. I mean, it's a, it feels like it's gone fast. When's your anniversary of like meeting? Uh, you know? 2005. Same with us. I think. I'm so bad with the, I hate, yeah. oh no, maybe 2003. I um, want to say it was 2005 of, uh, like spring, summer and, and married 2007. Oh yeah. And then just boom, we had our 10th anniversary last year. You did. Yeah. We were supposed to go to, uh, Ireland. Did I tell you about this? We had this, like, I had this like hotel points, airline miles. Like I built this beautiful house of cards. Uh, we were going to stay in like this castle in Ireland. I, Whoa. Yeah. I had like the 10th anniversary trip, like Jerry rigged, totally. <laughs> spring loaded, you know? And, uh, and then her father passed away Oh, and like with our kids and, you know, to get somebody to watch both of our kids, my parents were going to do it, but I don't know if we're going to get back. I don't know when we're going to, I mean, we're going to eventually hopefully go, mm-hmm. but like, you know, I don't know when. Yeah. It's hard to travel planning when you're using awards and shit like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A, <laughs> I don't wish it upon anybody. No. Like, I'm actually kind of good you at gotta it. You got to cobble it together. Oh, my God. Yeah. Like, the amount of time I spent. But yeah. anyway, uh, you are extremely uh, prolific. I'm always amazed at how generative you are creatively and how quickly you work and how easily it seems to, like, flow out of you. Like, why is that? I mean, I don't have much else at this point. <laughs> what the hell else am I going to use? You know what I'm saying? Like, I, um, I think... You know, the only thing I can say, somebody the other day was like, what's your advice for like budding writers or something? And I was like, like a writer writes like a cow makes milk. Like, it's just what you do. You know, I don't know any other way. So you, but like when you get an idea for a book, cause you said, you also work- it's that fear of never being enough too. I'm like, must, <laughs> must keep going, what do, must what do you, not sit and face self. What do you want to do? Like, do you have like an outcome that you're working towards? No, no. of course not. Okay. I don't no, know. it's just fear. You know, it's the, till the night, like I'm, yeah, well, okay. Uh, my next outcome is, what's my next outcome? Well, right now I just want this New York Times piece to run so that the kid I blew in a stairwell in college will see it when I post it on Facebook. Um, that is my ultimate goal. And because um, so I can be like, you know, I, I'm in the New York Times. Yeah. Person who's not probably not going to check Facebook that day. And that'll be my luck. Um, but what's my ultimate goal? I don't know. I think just to keep creating because you know what? There's never enough. There's never enough like press. There's never enough like whatever. I mean, I haven't really won any awards. I won like a um, push cart, which is like, you know, I mean, it's good, but like, but you know, so I can't be like, like, there's never enough like awards because like I like the, haven't won any, but it's like the Peabody. Is the Peabody a push cart? Equivalent? I don't know what the Peabody is. I don't know. It's like for television. But you know, there's never, I've had enough like, I guess like 
success or so, like something that resembles success, you know, even though like that, I know that there's never going to be enough. Right. Like I, I've had enough of it because I remember when I first, my first book came out, um, which was published like basically by like a guy in a basement in, um, St. Petersburg, Florida, right. um, cook. He's a very honest man, still pays me royalties, which is really nice and nice. cool. Yeah. Um, considering that he's been like driving around with the books in the back of his car for like a really long time. <laughs> um, but like, I remember thinking oh, I, if I, cause I was working as a book publicist at the time. And to me, publishers weekly, that was like it. Like if your if your book got reviewed by publishers weekly, that meant it was a real book. And I remember the day my book got reviewed when you say what thing, one thing, but me and your mother by publishers weekly. And I was like, well, this is it. This like is- <laughs> I can die now. Right. And then the next day it was like, is that all there is, you know? And so I know there is not enough, but I guess, um, I think it's, it's just to keep creating, you know, like I'm, I'm, I'm working on these two other novels right what, now. What is, I know you, I know one is about, you were telling me about, it's like an Orthodox. Okay. So one, well, one is set in Venice again, and I'm oh. really working on it with Nikki, like hardcore. Oh, like, that's the man upstairs. The man upstairs. Okay. Yeah. So the man upstairs is about, um, a couple who moves from New York because of the husband's illness to Venice, but they're younger than, than me and him. They're like 10 years younger. Um, and become, uh, obsessed with their neighbor who lives upstairs. He's hot. Well, oh. William, <laughs> his name's not William in real life. I'm not going to say his real name. He, I mean, and Nikki and I were obsessed with him for different reasons. Like for Nikki, he really, for both of us, I think he embodies the California dream, right? right like right. for me, it's like, I hate aging. I hate like, you know, I'm like, it's disgusting. I hate that I'm like getting older <laughs> and wrinklier. And also I long, just like I long for like this fantasy love that can exist. I long for this like idyllic, like teen and t- like this youth that like I didn't have, you know what I'm saying? And probably doesn't exist. No, but I was like, God, it's like was... eternal music festival in the sun that like I never experienced. But there is something, there is something to the glory of youth mm. and I'll see it like in a beautiful woman, um, Who's like, I was just watching The Princess Bride the other day. Like, mm-hmm. I was like flipping through, what was it? Or no, I was watching the Andre the Giant documentary on HBO. Yeah. And they had clips from The Princess Bride because he was in that. Yeah. And every time I see that movie, I just cannot believe how like perfectly beautiful Robin Wright is. She's like 20 probably in that movie. And just like, I don't even know how to describe it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Totally. Like luminous, like luminous. Or even people youth. aren't considered like traditional beauties. I'm like, any 17 year old or like any, like, like any 21 year old guy, like, like, you know, most <laughs> of them I'm like, if, if, if I met them when I was 21, I might be like, ew, I wouldn't hook up with him. But now I'm like, oh my God, you're like luminous. And like, <laughs> you know, like it doesn't even matter like what their features. It's just kind of like a, a juice and an energy a, an energy. Yeah. 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 I remember. And like, uh, I remember talking on this show. But yeah, like teens who like think they're so ugly, like, you know, like 16 year old girls, 17 year old girls, 14 year old girls. I'm like, you are so beautiful. You don't even just by, by sheer, your sheer vitality, like the juiciness. You're gorgeous. Enjoy your youth. Yeah, but you can't. You can't. It slips away. And I was thinking too. I I, And that's fine. Who did I, maybe, I don't think it was you. I can never remember like where I had the conversation if it was like, or if I was like rambling in a monologue, but mm-hmm. I think I was having a conversation with somebody on this show about an experience that I've always like hung on to where I was at a, a music festival. I was at Telluride Bluegrass Festival oh, yes. when I was in college and I was like in town because Telluride's like a one, it's like, you know, it's like a one street town and uh, there's all these people there and it's uh, beautiful in the mountains in the summer and everyone's in a good mood and it's just, it's sort of like a Narnia, you know, place. 
And I was young. I was like right at that moment. But I remember being in town. I'm like kind of turning to my like left or right, just like turning. And there's a girl about my age, like 20, 21 years old in like a sun hat who was like shockingly beautiful. And I had this thought afterwards where I was like, I think I might've just seen like, you know how when the sun sets and there's that supposedly that moment where there's like the green flash, the golden, yeah, yeah, like the golden flash or whatever. I was like, I, I think I just saw this person like she just hit like her peak beauty. Like, and I saw it. It was like that kind of thing where it was wow. like, wow. Like, so I guess my question is this, Amazing. Like, do we all reach, is there, there, there must be a moment in our lives when we were like at peak vitality. Yes. Like peak, like glory of youth. Yes. And it's like that fast. It's yeah. like you experience that flash. Did you ever read that book, Perfume, the story of a murderer? No, but I... Oh, it's so good. I wanna, I've heard you've told me about this book. I love this book because I love fragrance. Yeah. And, like when So Sad Today came out, this time I'm like obsessing about personal style. Last time I was like, if I can just find my signature scent, I'll be tethered to the earth. So I got like really into fragrance with the last book and crystals. Um, but this time it's like more like Instagram pictures, but not of me. But anyway, so this book is so, and it's all about that. It's all about like catching that moment, the ripeness, you yeah, know? And yeah. like, but do you have to kill someone to do that? You know, it's, oh, it's, it's, I love this book. I wonder when I reached that Listeners. Moment. When was my moment? I was, recommend When that was book. Brad Listy's moment of peak vitality? I don't know. It's probably like. I feel like I've had different like strengths though. Like maybe in my moment of peak vitality, my hair was doing something like real dewy, you know? <laughs> so like I was vital, but like my hair's better now. Yeah. I, I might've had like, like a samurai bun. Yeah. I was playing like devil stick. Did you? Uh, at times, yeah. Did you have long hair? I had hair down to like my chest when I was in college. No. Yes. No. <laughs> it was not Listeners. a good It was not Do a good Do a picture? Look. Not like on me, but, but somewhere. in the world? Somewhere. Oh, you got a... You got to post this. I had a ponytail. And I, I didn't... Oh, like, you, you best between... You had a ponytail? I feel like there are... A, there's a single digit percentage of men who genuinely look good with long hair. Yeah. I am not one of those <laughs> men. Like not even close. It was a terrible look for me. It was a year and a half of my life. I basically grew it out because I think I just want... I was living in Colorado. Like I'm very... Was this before or after the Bluegrass Festival? Uh, before. Before. So at Bluegrass, did you have the ponytail? No. Okay. No. I was like... I grew it out because I, like, I moved to Colorado and I immediately wanted to like adopt like all elements of Colorado style so that I could totally. assimilate. Like, I don't have any sense of my own style. I was just like, I just want to look like everybody else. And, like, and if the outside's chill, maybe the inside will follow. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> Trying to like put on a veneer of like chill yeah. exterior. But uh, I did it. I grew it out. I dealt with it for like six months and then chopped it off. Okay. We... I mean, I got to see a picture of this. It's, yeah, it's not good. You must be tweeting it. I was not. No, it's fabulous. I Do you know how always... much joy this will bring to like, so many people if you tweet you with long hair? We're my daughter love it. My daughter is obsessed with this too. She's like, Dad, you had long hair? Uh, you had a ponytail? And I'm really? Like, I'm like, yeah. She's like, she can't believe it. I'm like, Dad. I'm, and I'm like, I'm going to do it again. And, and she's like, no, don't. <laughs> and I'm like, and I'm going to grow a big beard. And she does not want me to grow a beard. She doesn't want you to be like mountain man. I, I think she associates it with age. Mm. So she's like, no, you'll be old. I want you to stay young. Oh, you know, that kind of thing. sweet. And I'm like, sorry, honey. You're like, well, it ain't happening. <laughs> it ain't happening. Like, There's, There's no stopping this way. train. <laughs> um, well, so and just some, to make sure we're clear, we have the man upstairs. And then what was the second one? Oh, yeah. So the, and granted, um, these my agent hasn't even read these. So who knows if they'll even sell. Um, I don't know what will happen. But so the other one is um, a book about... A love affair between two women. One is um, a very, very zoftig, voluptuous, uh, very um, uh, deliciously big um, 
Orthodox Jewish woman, and the other is a Reformed Jewish woman with an eating disorder. Okay. Thank you very much. That I'll be here is all not a book I've read before. No. And they meet in a frozen yogurt shop <laughs> where the uh, Zoftig woman's, woman's family owns a chain of them and, and works at the frozen yogurt shop. And she sort of pressures my narrator um, into putting some toppings on that, on that yogurt, which she's been eating plain for, for way too long now. <laughs> Uh, and then, of course, the Pisces out now. Pisces out on May 1st now. Uh, woman moves to Venice Beach, um, falls in romantic obsession with a merman whose tail starts below the dick. Okay. Well, I'm so happy for you. Thanks, Brad. Uh, I love you, and I'm glad to see I love you, you too. having this success. I appreciate it. We got deep on this talk. It was great. And, you know, I feel like we do. Yeah, yeah, we usually do. But I mean, it's just like, you know, to have it was like... soothing in a way. I felt, I feel cleansed. Yeah, and to have like an hour, no distractions. It's nice. No phones. We just sat down and talked. We did. It was really nice. No, I, I was so excited to come here. I was like, oh, I'm just going to go hang out with Brad. Yeah, that's what this podcast is. It, hanging with Brad. <laughs> AKA, other people, AKA, hanging with Brad. I should grow my long hair back out and we can rename the show. Please <laughs> find this picture and tweet it. All right, Melissa. Best of luck to you. Thank you, Brad. Bye. Okay, folks, there it is. That's Melissa Broder. Her novel, her debut novel, is called The Pisces. It's available now from Hogarth Press. Go get your copy. You can find Melissa online at melissabroder.com. I believe that's it. I'm taking, I'm just guessing it's melissabroder.com. Let me make sure on this. Hang on one second. I want to get this right. melissabroder.com. My internet is slow. I know she's on Twitter at Melissa Broder. Yeah, it's melissabroder.com. She's on Twitter at Melissa Broder. You can also follow her at So Sad Today. The novel, one more time, is called The Pisces. Thanks to uh, Cigarette Royalty for the interstitial music. And thanks to Kill Rockstars and the band Stereo Total for the theme song music. Don't forget about the app, the Other People app. It's free. Go get it. If you'd like to write to me, if you want to tell me something, the address is letters at otherppl.com, letters at otherppl.com. If you want to support the show, it's patreon.com slash otherpplpod. So yeah, it was good times up in San Francisco. Easy flights, good weather, good job stuff, I think. I mean, we'll see. I don't have anything else. I'll talk to you next week. I'll be back next week. We'll have another show. How about that? I've got some good episodes coming up. I feel excited about it. And in, like for the first time in a long time, I'm way out ahead of myself on episodes. I've got a lot of good stuff in the can. I just happen to have a lot of people coming through. So there's, uh, there's some good ones in the pipeline, in the other people pipeline. It's really beautiful up in Northern California. I like bike rides. I just want to go for bike rides, walk around on mountains, look at pretty things. At one point I was walking my bike through the woods on this path out, uh, it's like not the Presidio, but like near the Presidio. And, uh, there was just a dude pushing a shopping cart down the trail. Said hello to him. Like, I shouldn't have been on the trail with my bike, I don't think. I think it was just like a walking trail, but I didn't know where I was going. 
and I was feeling self-conscious about it, and then I came around the bend, and there's a guy with a shopping cart. <laughs> and then there were, like, some buffalo, too, in Golden Gate Park, which I wasn't expecting. They have, like, a bison preserve in Golden Gate Park right there in the city. There's bison. And there's, like, this aquatic smell to the Pacific Ocean up there. I mean, I guess that makes sense that the ocean would smell aquatic, but it's just like, I was like, wow, I'm really here at the ocean. I felt like I don't feel like that in Los Angeles necessarily. I feel like I could at any moment, like a whale could breach or maybe I was just in a good mood. I had a lot of endorphins going. I rode like 20 miles on like a crappy rental bike. It's like burning off energy. I guess that's good. I'm 42 years old. I got I can ride 20 miles. Like, no problem. I like nature, I'll tell you that. I'm a fan of nature.